Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to the last panel of the day, the future of money in a fintech world. Uh, we have some amazing panelists. Uh, I already know that they are gonna give us uh, a interesting and provocative vision of the future of digital currency in central banks, the future of digital currencies versus other existing alternate currencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I am going to give us the briefest of introductions so we can go right into their comments. One reminder, if you have questions, those of you in the audience, you can send them in uh, via Cato's webpage. You can uh, put them on Twitter, hashtag Cato Moncon. Uh, you can put them on Facebook and through the chat box on Slido. So without further ado, we are going to start today with Dr. Eswar Prasad, Talani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell, uh, and also salient to this column, author of The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. We're going to follow with Dr. David Musto of Wharton, Dr. Megan Green, Global Chief Economist at the Kroll Institute and Senior Fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown and Dr. Lawrence White at George Mason. So let's start with you, Dr. Prasad. You wrote the book on this. Uh, I know it's a challenge, but please give us uh, the most immediately salient uh, portion of it, given all that has happened since you published it. Thank you, Christopher, for that kind introduction. And the Cato Monetary Conference has become one of the leading fixtures of the fall conference circuit. So this is really a privilege. And it's also a privilege to be talking about this at a time when I believe we are entering a new era of money, but not quite in the form that might one have thought about when the Bitcoin revolution started. Now, Bitcoin's appearance on the monetary scene was impeccably timed, coming right after the global financial crisis. In fact, the Bitcoin white paper was published six weeks after the Lehman moment, September 15, 2008. Um, and it came in at a time when trust in uh, um, traditional financial institutions and in central banks and governments was at a real all-time ebb. But what Bitcoin is going to accomplish in the long run really is not so much uh, turn into a major asset in my view, but really set off and catalyze a set of transformations, some of which were already underway some of which it has pushed further, which I'm going to make a difference, not just to money, but also to financial markets and institutions, to central banks and to the international monetary system. Now, there were many developments already underway in the context of fintech platforms, being able to provide not just payment services, but even basic financial intermediation without relying on brick and mortar operations and without relying on the traditional tools that commercial banks have had to do two things that they do very well, which is maturity transformation and getting around information asymmetries. If you look at the emerging market and hold, these are countries um, from low-income countries like Kenya to middle-income countries like um, um, India and China, where digital payments are very fast becoming the norm. But these digital payment platforms are also able to use data in a very effective way in order to provide basic banking products and services. So there was a bit of a revolution underway already. Now, what Bitcoin promised to do was to provide a medium of exchange that did not require the use of a trusted intermediary or central bank money. 
at some level, this sounds like uh, um, uh, an incredible proposition, but Bitcoin actually delivered on it. It can actually consummate transactions um, between parties using just their digital identities and without a trusted intermediary involved. The problem is Bitcoin does not work very well at what it was supposed to function as because it has very volatile value relative to um, uh, the unit of account, which is still fiat currencies. Um, it doesn't have very fast processing speed or volume. So there are other cryptocurrencies that have stepped in to fill the breach. Stable coins in particular, which many of which are backed up by fiat currencies, and then a few that are backed up by other cryptocurrencies, which have already met uh, a sad demise. But fiat currency-backed stablecoins are beginning to get traction, in my view, because they are really trying to meet a fundamental need for better payment systems that are more efficient, that everyone has access to, um, and that are very low cost. Um, there is an irony here, though. The whole point of Bitcoin was to decentralize um, the creation and the use of money, but everything about stable coins is centralized. The issuance, the validation, um, the management of the entire system. Um, and in addition, of course, and the biggest irony of all, stable coins get their stable value by being backed up by stores of fiat currencies. So this is still creating competition. And this is a theme that I think will carry through, not just domestically, but on the international dimension as well. The fact that we are entering a new era of competition between privately issued currencies and fiat currencies. Now, as some of the um, economic historians, the highly distinguished economic historians at this conference um, um, know, there has been um, a long period, um, even during the previous millennium, um, when there was intense competition between state or central bank, uh, state issued currencies and private money. In most countries, the emergence of central banks, which took place in different countries at different times over the last couple of centuries, pretty much decisively settled that competition in favor of fiat currencies. But now I think we are entering a new era of competition. And as economists, certainly we think competition is good. But I think this competition will take a particular form with the new monies, especially the private monies, including stable coins and other um, mediums of exchange, potentially serving well in that specific function while leaving the store of value function largely resident in fiat currencies. So I think that separation of uh, um, the functions of money is something we've already begun to see and is likely to gain further traction. Now, into this mix, of course, comes the notion of central bank digital currencies, with every central bank recognizing that if it wants to keep the money that it issues still relevant at the retail level, it's going to have to be in digital form. Now, there is a deeper question here about whether central bank retail money is really crucial in any way um, for the functioning of an economy or even for a central bank to conduct its monetary policy operations. Uh, certainly, a central bank can influence the cost of funds and affect um, uh, economic activity and inflation without ever um, issuing retail currency. But there does seem to be a move towards uh, CBDCs with different motivations at play. Bahamas, the um, country to issue the world's first nationwide CBDC, wants to use its CBDC to broaden financial inclusion, to give everyone in the economy, including mom and pop stores, including low income, low net worth individuals, easy access to a low cost digital payment system without necessarily having a bank account or credit card, for instance. 
In Sweden, by contrast, the Riksbank seems to view the e-krona or digital krona project as basically creating a backstop to a private payments infrastructure, which might be subject to technological or confidence vulnerabilities. So essentially, an e-krona becomes a public payment option. Um, and then there is China, uh, which of course is sui generis in this as in most other cases. In China, Alipay and WeChat Pay have blanketed the economy with low-cost digital payments, but they control a lot of data which they were least have with the government. And the government is concerned about these two large players not allowing entry of other players, thereby limiting innovation, limiting competition. But all of these uh, uh, different motivations are converging into a design choice where essentially the central bank provides an infrastructure, um, essentially a payment system at the back end, provides the CBDCs in the form of digital tokens, but the front end of the payment system, how well these digital tokens are used, um, uh, how efficiently they are used, is all left to private payment providers, including commercial banks, perhaps telecom companies, and other sorts of payment providers. But there are still risks to a CBDC. One, of course, that if you end up um, unwittingly or not blocking private sector in innovation and payment. And second, there is a real concern about disintermediation of the banking system with people preferring to hold their money in CBDC digital wallets, even though those might be non-interest bearing relative to interest bearing deposit accounts. I think we are coming up with conceptual and technical design choices that can mitigate these risks but not really eliminate them. And of course, the one risk that will be very hard to eliminate for anything digital is the notion of a loss of privacy. If you were to move to a world where the only available payment options are a private payment option or uh, a digital um, central bank currency. Now, on the um, in terms of monetary policy, there are going to be some complications that arise, but this comes also uh, from the fundamental transformation that is taking place in financial markets. I spoke earlier about fintech platforms undertaking financial intermediation functions. There are now a lot of new players who are providing competition to commercial banks. You could even think of um, a stablecoin issuer as in some sense um, a narrow bank um, basically taking deposits and uh, providing fully collateralized um, um, uh, loans. So in a sense, we are moving to a world where commercial banks may face a large number of threats because both in terms of domestic payments and international payments and in terms of the basic financial intermediation functions, they're going to have a lot more competition. This is going to complicate the conduct of monetary policy because the one thing we know is that commercial banks are still very important in terms of the creation of money in modern economies. Most money, after all, is created by commercial banks rather than the central bank. So if commercial banks start playing a smaller role, how exactly monetary policy work, how credit creation will work um, remains to be seen. There is some evidence, in fact, that the shadow banking system actually tends to be pro-cyclical to creating credit when the central bank is trying to reduce credit. What about the international dimension? We've heard about China moving forward aggressively with the digital yuan, while the US seems to be a bit of a slacker with the digital dollar. Um, but of course, with Fed now um, soon improving payments in the US, we hope, um, the case for a digital dollar might be uh, even more weakened. So is China going to get a head start? Here too, I think my initial theme of the bifurcation of the roles of money is going to be important. 
certainly one can imagine that in combination with the cross-border interbank payment system that China has set up, which actually I think is going to be the game changer because it can communicate directly with other countries' payment systems, even act as a messaging system that can bypass SWIFT. So if you take SIPs or the uh, cross-border interbank payment system and the digital yuan in combination, one can well see the yuan getting a little more traction in parts of the world where China has a significant uh, economic and or political footprint. It's going to mean that China's currency is going to be used more as a payment currency. But is it going to change the renminbi's role as a reserve currency? There I hold to the view that for a store of value that domestic and foreign investors trust, you need a lot more than economic size and easy availability of a currency. You need a strong institutional framework behind that currency. An independent central bank, um, an uh, institutionalized system of checks and balances, the rule of law, none of which China has shown any indication of um, moving towards. So I think even on the international dimension, we're going to move towards a world um, where there could be this bifurcation of the roles of currencies. There is one group of countries for which there are going to be benefits from reduced frictions in international payments, but also a lot of potential risks. And these are the emerging market economies and especially small open economies, because for these countries, if you think about the possibility of a digital yuan or a digital dollar being easily available, or even a stable coin issued by a major corporation such as Amazon, or perhaps one day Meta, uh, if it revives its project uh, for a stable coin, those uh, alternatives could be much more happy or the domestic central bank. So those currencies, in my view, face a real existential threat and of course, the reduced frictions in international payments is going to be good for exporters and importers, economic migrants sending remittances back to their home countries, small entrepreneurs looking for capital, not just in their home country, but abroad, but also means a lot more capital flow volatility. So it's going to be an interesting time in terms of the evolution of money with, I think, um, certain types of money potentially becoming even more powerful in their roles as stores of value, while the medium of exchange function is where there is going to be a lot more competition. And the one thing for certain is that we are in for a very exciting time in terms of the world of money, finance, as well as international finance. Thank you so so much. And uh, I uh, would like to move on now to Dr. Musto, if you are available. Hi, great to be here. All right, okay, well, let me uh, let me dive in then. And- uh, Glad you- So Chris, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You're here, please, please take it away. I know you have some comments that could follow that. Well, I just, I put together a few bullet points I'd like to cover. Oh yeah, go ahead. Cover anything that um, Eswar just talked about. Maybe just maybe like drill down on a couple of things, um, but just a few bullet points I wanted to go over. And then of course, hopefully um, we can chat about these afterwards. So just a little background. So I'm the uh, faculty director of the Stevens Center here at Warden Stevens Center for Innovation and Finance, which is our FinTech Center here at Wharton. And um, in the context of that, I interact a lot with these, the uh, students here who are interested in FinTech 
in uh, to, in in crypto and uh, blockchain um, topics and the whole range of fintech topics. And we also do a lot of uh, outreach to the neighborhood, to high school students, and so on. Um, also curious about this and. Uh, uh, and also, we interact a lot with the, a lot of the big players in the, in the crypto space. And so the main thing I want to focus on is just a few sort of interesting thoughts that I have picked up in my interactions with, uh, with the industry uh, about most, mostly on um, crypto uh, currencies here. I don't have too much to say about, I'm not going to say too much about CBDCs since that seems to be covered pretty well. Uh, by the other uh, participants. So, um, okay. So of course the interesting thing from the point of view of our students is that uh, if you think about all the wealth that's been created over their lifetimes, the, you know, the, the large fortunes that have been made, so much of it is network effects. You know, uh, how we, you know, we joined Facebook instead of back in the day, MySpace because everyone else is on Facebook and we go to Amazon and Google and all these, uh, you know, we've just mentioned Alibaba, um, all these different platforms we go to because other people are there and just get this critical mass uh, and you get network effects and everything explodes and the tremendous fortunes are made. And we look forward to the future of money and future monetary systems. Uh, cryptocurrencies uh, offer the possibility of not just, you know, building apps that, that thrive on the new monetary system, but actually building the monetary system itself and capturing some of the value uh, of the network effects that it, that it creates uh, through, through your ownership, right? So, um, so when you think about the trading cryptocurrencies, it's, um, you know, you're, this, this is buying a piece of the future monetary system. And I think it's worth um, pausing for a moment. People talk about Bitcoin in particular, so much of the focus is on the price of Bitcoin, which of course is way off now. It's uh, two thirds off of where it was at its peak, though I'm guessing everyone in this conference would love to get in a time machine and spend their lunch money 10 years ago on Bitcoin. We'd still be uh, pretty well off. Um, but Bitcoin you know, has been very volatile, not just the recent drop, but uh, the, the, the gigantic run up and several run up it's made over time. And as um, Eswar was just um, alluding to, this makes it clear, the volatility makes it clear that it's nowhere near being a reliable store of value or unit of account. And if you can't be a store of value or unit of account, well, those are two of the fundamental jobs of a currency. So it's, it's not much of a currency. It's very much a speculative asset. Um, and of course, you have to ask yourself, if it ever did become a reliable store of value or unit of account, you'd have to expect all the speculators who are now so long in Bitcoin to be getting out of it, since these are not the sort of people who would just hold boring dollars, so they're not going to hold boring Bitcoin either. So if it ever did become a unit of account, they'd be, they'd be getting out of it. And you have to wonder, how stable would the price of Bitcoin be if the people who are now holding it started to get out of it? So I think that's sort of a brain teaser for another day. How do we move to an equilibrium where today's speculators offload their Bitcoin to non-speculators at something like its, its current price? Um, but for today's purposes, sort of imagine the future monetary system and the, we're trying to imagine the future monetary system and the role of cryptocurrencies in it. Um, I think it 
it may be useful to think of Bitcoin not as the currency we'll be pricing and saving in, but instead as one big player, as one big player in the space put it to me, as the bars of gold in the basement of the New York Fed. Think of a Bitcoin as a bar of gold in the basement of the New York Fed, right? With these bars of gold, the Fed can execute large transactions very securely, uh, but also slowly and laboriously. And you can think of Bitcoin transactions on the blockchain in roughly the same way. The, big, the Bitcoin blockchain, it's slow. It, it doesn't accommodate a lot of transactions and the energy demands are huge, uh, but it gives us the security that lugging those gold bars between the cubbies under the Fed gives us. And arguably it gives us even more security than the Fed can give. And a monetary system that relies on those slow and expensive but big and secure transactions in gold doesn't live or die by the price of gold, right? It's, it serves a function uh, underneath uh, the, whether the price goes up or down, doesn't necessarily pay a big role. And that's a, so that's a good description of the payment systems that are being built on top of Bitcoin. They use Bitcoin holdings to move value between payers and recipients, and they rely on the Bitcoin blockchain for security but they don't rely on the day-to-day -day stability of the price of Bitcoin. They do need people to hold Bitcoin, of course, though. And so you, you need that, to hold Bitcoin and to, to provide it to this payment system. Uh, so so that's, that's one, one way, I think, to think about what's the role of Bitcoin and some of the other cryptocurrencies uh, in, in the future. We call them currencies, but we don't have to think of them as playing the role of a currency um, in the future monetary system. And by the way, the, the energy demands of Bitcoin were in the news again today. So the Biden administration is raising concerns about you know, how much energy is being used. Um, and people are hoping, of course, that the, the, um, this upcoming uh, merge with Ethereum, where the hope is to go forward with a proof of stake um, uh, system as opposed to the proof of work that uses all the energy, maybe that will um, that will take off and the energy demands will be reduced. So maybe, maybe that'll happen. And if that happens, of course, that would uh, relieve a lot of uh, tensions. But if the energy demands of proof of work are here to stay, um, let me just offer something that I hear a lot from people in the industry and you can, you can you know, take it where you want. Uh, but the point is that the, this might not be as hard in the rest of society as as it first appears. And the point that has been made to me by a couple players in this industry is that um, in the future, the mining operations where you're doing this proof of, um, proof of work could ultimately be owned by the electricity suppliers themselves uh, and run in a way that reduces their externality. So imagine, and this is an example I think of, imagine a utility in the panhandle of Texas which is close to a lot of wind there in the panhandle of Texas and a lot of windmills, but it's very far from major cities and other customers. And during the day, the windmills may supply a lot more electricity uh, than is demanded. So the utility could then use that energy to run its miners and then turn that off when supply, supply falls below demand. And the utility can therefore profit from its excess energy, turn this excess energy directly uh, into money and there really aren't a lot of other ways to turn extra energy into money that you can just 
we can just turn it on and off, right? You can't have like a smelting operation where you're going to smelt aluminum for a few minutes or hours when when the supply is high and then turn it off when it goes lower, have a production line with workers that work or don't work, depending on whether, whether you can move the lines with electricity. But you can just turn on and off mining at the drop of a hat. Turn it on, it's making money. Turn it off, it's not making money. Uh, so it's, it's as far as a way to turn uh, excess energy uh, into money, it's, it's about as, as bad as good as you can get. Um, and that is something like what we see people doing now, but this might ultimately be something that's just right there under the same roof, under the, in the same organization, um, the same utility. So, of course, this all makes a lot less sense the more you can store excess energy and the more you can transmit it long distances. But with the storage and transmission we have now, it can work in a way that means a lot less externality than might first appear. So that's some of what I'm hearing about cryptocurrencies and the future of money. Regarding central bank digital currencies, you know, if you hang around economists, uh, well, financial economists like I do and, and follow the, the, the papers people are writing, um, you know, um, it, we were just talking about the possible possibility of disintermediation where I could put my money in a bank account, I could put it in CBDC, or why not put it in CBDC instead? Well, that might be true in a general sense, but what people really worry about uh, are the panic situations where, where you have rapid disintermediation all of a sudden uh, in, in a crisis out of the commercial banking system and into CBDC. That's the main thing that uh, when this you know, comes up in, in, a, in a room full of financial economists that people start talking about. And there are various patches that one could put on that. I, uh, maybe we'll be talking about those patches uh, coming up, so I'm not going to uh, go into it now. Um, so uh, the main thing I wonder about, and maybe, and I think I will leave this to the next speaker, is, um, you know, when we think about the potential costs of a central bank digital currency, the potential sort of fragility risk I'm talking about there, maybe some of the other things, that, uh, privacy concerns and so on, uh, versus the benefits, you know, the lower cost of remittances and the faster settlement and all of that, maybe easier fiscal policy. Uh, and we're trying to strike this balance. Uh, are we going to pick the balance that's best for us? Are we going to be pushed into this because we don't want China to get ahead of us and for us to lose what we gain from being uh, the world's go-to currency, right? So can, can we, uh, are we going to be pushed into this um, or can we decide for ourselves whether this is the right move? So let me leave it at that and uh, hand off to the next speaker. Thank you very much, Dr. Musto. Um, and uh, I think addressing both your comments and Dr. Prasad's, uh, Dr. Green, uh, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, central bank digital currencies and, of course, how China is unique. It feels like this is one of the most important issues in this entire topic. Uh, you know, for the next 10 to 20 years. So please take it away. Yeah, thanks. And, and thanks so much to Cato for inviting me to speak. This truly is one of the best Econodork Fests of the year. Um, so it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and as you mentioned, I'm going to focus my comments on central bank digital currencies, which of course you you never heard anything about 10 years ago. And now all of a sudden it's it's everywhere. Um, so I'm going to talk about some of the motivations for establishing a central bank digital currency. And then I'm also going to talk about some of the solutions that CBDCs are actually meant 
to address and, and how likely they are to address them. Um, <clears throat> so to start off with the motivations, um, why we're all of a sudden hearing about central bank digital currencies constantly, um, there are four main motivations. One really is the rise of, of crypto and fintech. Uh, so all of a sudden, all these payments, deposits, lending threatened to leave the banking system. Um, and I think that's really scared central bankers. They're going into relatively unsupervised networks. Um, and, and so central bankers are looking to keep, keep those payments in particular um, within a system they can control and see. Uh, secondly, and related to this, uh, you know, remember Facebook announced Libra slash DM. Um, and to use a technical term, I think that scared the bejesus out of um, central bankers, right? All of a sudden you had a tech firm with really deep pockets saying that they were going to establish um, uh, this kind of international currency. It's gone nowhere, but I, I really do think that ignited this push for central bank digital currencies. Um, a third one is much more recent, and that's the pandemic. Um, a number of uh, central banks have cited that they've, you know, they've accelerated their research for central bank digital currencies because of the pandemic, because they realized all of a sudden that they needed to get money uh, to individuals uh, and, and quickly. And so central bank digital currencies could be one way to do that. And we've, we've needed to do it once, but we know we're probably going to need to do it more going forward. And then finally, I think a big push for CBDCs has come from China. So from the ECNY, the, the digital yuan, um, and now, of course, this is these are all motivations for Western central banks. I'd say China has its own motivations for establishing a digital, a central bank digital currency, um, and and they go entirely against our motivations, actually. So one motivation is to internationalize the one. And Dr. Prasad had said he thought actually there could be some success in at least gaining a bit more traction for the one if there were a central bank digital currency. I think that's right. I don't buy the arguments so that the renminbi could challenge the dollar as global reserve currency off the back of this. I don't think that's right, but I do think that China's looking to internationalize this currency a little bit more. It's also looking to set the standards for central bank digital currencies. It is as the, the first big economy to set one up. There's been a pilot program for seven years now. It's being used in over 10 cities. Um, China gets to sort of establish some of the governance and some of the standards for everybody else's. So that's important. Um, also, China can embed limits directly in the currency, so that means that it can actually um, target its capital controls and make them much more precise, which China has an interest in doing. Um, it could actually allow China to open up other parts of its capital account a little bit more than it already is if it can really crack down on, on exactly what it's looking to crack down on. Um, there's a privacy issue that we in the West are really concerned about. Um, China's viewing this as a, a feature, not a bug. They get much more data on people if there's a central bank digital currency. Um, and, and that's a bonus. And then most recently and importantly, I think, you know, establishing a, a central bank digital currency in China is, is a way to circumvent sanctions. Um, so China's watched as the U.S. has weaponized, the U.S. and its allies uh, have weaponized finance against Russia. And to be clear, you know, even with the central bank digital currency, um, it, it couldn't totally circumvent sanctions. The U.S. can always um, block anyone from access to clearing, which, which would make it really difficult if you have to do anything in dollars. Um, and so the U.S. does have some recourse on that. But it, it would make sanctions um, much harder to uh, go ahead and enforce. So I think that's another one of China's motivations as well. And then, of course, in reaction to China's 
pilot program, I think that the West has, has really um, taken on this call that we all need to establish central bank digital currencies. There's a bit of FOMO out there, I think, with central bank digital currencies. And I have to say, I, I like to think of myself as a pretty early adopter. I'm pretty open-minded, but um, I'm a little bit skeptical of central bank digital currencies. I tend to think of them a bit like Swiss army knives. Um, when you're out in the woods and you need a tool that can do a lot of different things, Swiss army knives are fantastic. When you're in your kitchen, I don't think anyone's reaching for their Swiss army knife uh, for the corkscrew function so they can open a bottle of wine, right? You'd actually rather use a normal corkscrew. And I, th I think that relates to central bank digital currencies insofar as they're meant to solve a whole host of, of problems. And I, I'm, I'm gonna talk about six of them specifically um, with one tool, but actually it's not clear that they're the best tool for any one of those. Um, and so I'm a little bit skeptical. That being said, I think they're absolutely inevitable and they're coming. And so we need to be thoughtful about their design. Um, one of the problems or one of the goals that central bank current uh, digital currencies are meant to achieve is to improve on cash. So issuing cash is actually pretty expensive. Um, you then also have to pay for handling, safeguarding, um, counterfeit prevention. Um, the Fed actually in 2021 budgeted $1 billion um, to reimburse the Bureau of Engraving and Printing for printing its currency. So it's pretty expensive. Um, there are all kinds of money laundering implications. If you lose it, you can't get it back. So th there are some ways that, that we could improve on cash by establishing a central bank digital currency. And I should highlight, I'm only talking about retail central bank digital currencies because I think wholesale central bank digital currencies are a solution without a problem actually. So specifically talking about, you know, you and me being able to have an account where we can use central bank digital currencies to buy a cup of coffee. Um, so there are ways that a central bank digital currency could improve on cash. It could be a lot cheaper in particular. Um, but that being said, cash isn't going to disappear. Um, so we'll still have cash in the system, I think, even if we launch a central bank digital currency, it will probably decline. And we're already seeing cash decline even without central bank digital currencies. So that could defray some of the costs, um, but it will still exist. So some of those costs will, will persist as well. Um, a second goal for central bank digital currencies is to boost financial inclusion. So there are a lot of unbanked people in the world. Um, the idea is that we can actually make banking sort of cheaper and, and more inclusive. Um, in theory, that works. In practice, it might not, actually. If you establish a central bank digital currency, um, then people have a choice between, in theory, between whether to keep their deposits in a bank or at, you know, with the central bank. Um, the central bank's obviously much safer. And so some of those deposits are going to leave banks and go to the central bank. Um, that means that banks, if they lose their deposits, even if it's just some of their deposits, they're gonna be able to lend less. And they'll probably have to jack up their fees to make up for lost revenues in terms of their lending in, in the simplest model. And so actually you could end up make, making banking a whole lot more expensive. So while people could get access to central bank digital currencies, um, it could make banking less, um, less attractive. And, and there are services that banks might provide that a central bank might not be willing to, credit allocation, for example, that people might want. So it may not actually boost financial inclusion. 
Also in the US, about a quarter of those who are unbanked said that the biggest reason they were unbanked was that they don't trust banks and they want privacy. I'm not sure that regular people are really discerning that much between banks and a central bank. I'm also not sure that regular people are discerning between a central bank and the government. So I think people don't want a central bank to have um, full, you know, view, viewing of all of their transactions, um, you know, over the course of a year. While in China, that's desired um, by the by the central bank. In the U.S. and the West, that's a much more thorny topic. So I think privacy is a huge concern as well. So even if you establish a central bank digital currency, people might say, no way, I don't want the government viewing all my transactions. So it's not clear that central bank digital currencies could actually solve that one. Um, there is a hope that central bank digital currencies can improve payments. Um, so for domestic payments, I would say we need to do that anyhow, particularly in the US, but also in other countries. Um, FedNow is in theory launching next year, so that should improve domestic payments, make them much faster, more instantaneous. When it comes to cross-border payments, which I think you know, there's much more room to improve on, uh, I think central bank digital currencies are gonna have a hard time taking care of that effectively. Uh, if you establish cross-border payments between two countries, um, then those two countries have to establish a, a digital corridor uh, and they have to agree on the architecture and the governance of that corridor. Now that's pretty complicated just for two economies, but if you consider there are 200 plus currencies in the world, to really see central bank digital currencies be adopted broadly for cross-border payments, you know, it's implausible that that many deals can be done. Um, even in the face of a war, we're seeing divisions between countries. So, uh, you know, and I'm referring to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, you can imagine that it would be difficult to get so many countries um, to strike that kind of deal to set up those digital corridors. So I, I think it's unlikely that central bank digital currencies will solve that problem too. Um, there is an argument that actually a central bank digital currency could improve the transmission of monetary policy. And there the specific focus is the ability to implement negative rates. So if, if everybody's got central bank digital currencies, then central banks can go ahead and, and, and impose negative rates across the board. Um, this used to be one of the most compelling arguments for central bank digital currencies, I think. In an environment where we're facing um, high inflation, that's obviously a much smaller concern. No one's looking to impose negative interest rates. No central bank is. Now, whether inflation is structurally higher or not has certainly been the topic of discussion over the course of, of this conference and certainly for months amongst economists. I think the jury's still out when the dust settles what the economy and what inflation will look like. But, um, but I, I think you know, having the ability to impose negative rates might be less compelling now than it once was. And again, you know, you'll still have uh, cash in the system. So that could make negative rates a little bit less influential. Um, there is an argument that I think Dr. Musto mentioned, um, or sorry, Dr. Prasad mentioned about how central bank digital currencies could actually improve competitiveness or competition rather uh, across the banking sector. So for example, if, if um, there's an interest paid on a central bank digital currency, then banks are going to be forced to follow suit. That's certainly possible. And here design I think is really key because um, that is one option, but actually central bank digital currencies could also completely decimate the banking sector. Um, so if, if you know, individuals hold accounts directly with the central bank, 
um, we, it would result in the complete disintermediation of the financial system. And, and I think most economists certainly and central bankers are looking to avoid that um, in part because there are a whole bunch of roles that banks serve that the central bank really doesn't want to pick up. For example, credit allocation. Central banks don't want to choose between you know, who should be a winner and who should be a loser uh, in an economy. And so you know, that's at the heart of credit allocation. There's also a whole bunch of know your customer, uh, money laundering type stuff, due diligence that central banks don't have the competency to do and would have to spend a lot of money to develop. And so they may well just leave that with banks. Um, that being said, as I mentioned earlier, even if you, you use banks um, as a go-between to provide some of the services, some bank deposits will flee um, and will go into central bank digital currencies. And so bank business models will be undermined to some degree. Um, and that could hurt the banking sector. So you might not actually get improved competition. Um, and finally, just a point that I think Dr. Musso mentioned was financial stability. The idea is that you know, the central bank is, is the ultimate backstop. It's the lender of last resort. So uh, if you have a central bank digital currency and, and your economy goes into a tailspin, people will feel like their money's safe. Um, that could be the case, but we could also see bank runs being accelerated if people have their money in banks and a central bank digital currency, they may be really quick to pull it out of banks, stick it into a central bank digital currency um, in times of stress. I think that's quite likely. likely. So that one could really go either way. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that I think central bank digital currencies are inevitable. Um, we already have 10 jurisdictions that have launched them. Um, so they're already being used in some places. China, of course, has been a big, big propeller um, for other economies trying to develop central bank digital currencies. The, the ECB is um, further ahead than the Bank of England and the Fed in, in developing central bank digital currencies. I think they're absolutely coming in all of these jurisdictions. So I do, I do think that despite my skepticism, um, we're going to need to develop one. I just think that design will be really crucial in mitigating some of the risks that I've highlighted in addressing some of the goals that central bank digital currencies are supposed to achieve. And so design is absolutely crucial. And I think that the Fed and the Bank of England are, are laggards, relative laggards, but I also think they're being incredibly careful and being careful about design, I think is warranted. I'll leave my comments there. Thank you very much, Dr. Green. I, uh, I appreciate the, the level of detail that you went into and your skepticism. <laughs> Uh, I love the the uh, the diversity of viewpoints we have on this panel, um, Dr. White. It, it's really up to you to kind of uh, take us home here, and uh, I know that you have planned to kind of speak to the competition between central bank digital currencies and other digital currencies at a very high level. So um, please take it away. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, let me uh, share my screen. So I want to show some slides. Okay. Um, so I want to talk about the uh, choice among monetary standards, which is a kind of level of generality above uh, what technology we use to uh, deliver fiat money. Uh, and some of what I'm going to say is drawn from a forthcoming book uh, entitled Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin. Uh, 
advertisement over. Uh, but let's uh, remember where we are uh, right now. We've got record high inflation in the euro, the highest uh, inflation in euro history. And it's really a shame to see because the euro was supposed to have a constitution that had one goal, which was price stability. And now it's way off track. If we look at the US, we're currently at eight and a half percent inflation year over year, which is the highest inflation we've had in 40 years. In Great Britain, they're back into double digit inflation. Uh, again, the highest inflation they've had in 40 years. So uh, the question is whether this is just a blip or whether it may be sustained for as long as it was sustained, uh, as we see in these charts, in the 70s and early 80s, uh, which would be a great burden on the economy and a great tax on the users of uh, the dollar and the pound and other leading fiat currencies. In the rest of the world, in middle income and developing countries that uh, Dr. Prasad mentioned, inflation rates are even worse. Here are the worst of the lot. We've got inflation rates above 30% running to triple digits uh, in places like Lebanon and Sudan. So fiat money institutions are doing a terrible job, uh, especially for the people who live in uh, economies where they're more reliant on cash and don't have the inflation hedges as readily available uh, as we have in the West. So what do we do about these kind of rates of inflation? How do we stop them? How do we control growth in the price level? I think it's generally understood now, and uh, Tom Sargent referred to Milton Friedman's work, that we need to control growth in the quantity of money. Because when you add more money to the economy, you dilute the purchasing power of existing units of money. So this is not to say that shocks to velocity and real income can't also affect the price level, but those tend to be small and more or less random over time, whereas growth in the quantity of money uh, can be very large if the central bank wants it to be and can be very persistent. So we need to control growth in the quantity of money if we wanna keep inflation out of double digits uh, and if we wanna keep it to low single digits. How do we control growth in the quantity of money? Well, a popular approach has been, let's persuade the central bank to pay more attention to keeping inflation low. And I'm not against that, but I don't think that's sufficient. I think we've learned that central banks are politically pressured. They have objectives of their own, which have to do with the trade-off between inflation and unemployment. They are pressured by fiscal authorities to accommodate uh, spending. And so we need more than just persuasion. We the central bank is already optimizing given all the influences on it. We need institutional constraints. We need to limit central banks discretion to pursue goals other than stability in the purchasing power of money. Now, where do we get those institutional constraints? Well, this is a long running discussion in economics and going back to the last incidents of uh, double digit inflation, there are basically two approaches that have been discussed. One is imposing some kind of rules 
on the uh, creation of fiat money, rules on central banks, and the, the classic article by Kidlet and Prescott talked about the argument for rules rather than discretion as a way of enabling central banks to achieve their inflation targets more effectively. Uh, and this is advice directed to policymakers. So I've underlined the word policymakers in the abstract of their article. Uh, but it's policymakers who are going to, legislatures who are going to impose constraints on central banks. But there's an alternative uh, approach, which is to provide more competitive discipline on the issuers of money. And so to foster market competition among monetary standards and the classic work in this approach is uh, Hayek's denationalization of money actually published a year before the Kidlin and Prescott article. And Hayek reflected on why inflation had gotten so bad by asking why has the quality of money been allowed to deteriorate so badly and to reflect that, well, in other goods and services, what we rely on to provide us with quality merchandise is competition among producers. You can stop buying a low quality product and switch to a higher quality product. So let's let people choose the best of the monies that are available to them. So the first proposal was let people choose among any fiat money in the world. Don't put barriers to them doing that. Don't stop banks from allowing people to have accounts in foreign currency if the foreign currency is more reliable. But the denationalization referred to Hayek's further proposal that private enterprise could provide uh, stably valued currencies where issuers would promise to provide stable value. And if they didn't, the argument went, the public would abandon them in favor of the issuers who are doing a better job. So that would constrain central banks because they would lose their customers if they didn't match the low inflation rates of the competing suppliers. That was the argument. So what's changed since the 70s? Well, we have more entrants uh, into the market for monetary standards. Bitcoin, which has been mentioned before, uh, emerged in 2009 and it's off its peak uh, market capitalization, but it's still currently worth $367 billion. That's uh, as of this morning. So that's pretty impressive to go from zero to $367 billion. Uh, we also have the technology introduced by Bitcoin, the, the use of blockchains uh, being adapted to making gold transferable again in a more convenient way than the tradition of having uh, gold in bank vaults or warehouse vaults where account balances can be transferred by the keeper of the uh, vault. So Tether Gold uh, created uh, in 2014, so it's still pretty new, has a market cap of 421 million, so a tiny fraction of Bitcoin's value. Uh, actually, the leader in this segment is Pax Gold, which is over half a billion, still small compared to Bitcoin, but uh, growing. And these provide a low cost way of holding tra uh, transaction balances in gold and making them transferable to anybody who can accept uh, an Ether token, because these are issued as Ether tokens. Uh, 
there are legal obstacles to the use of these monies, and there are certainly obstacles to the creation of banks that are based on uh, digital gold. But I think they, both Bitcoin and digital gold are sort of plausible competitors as monetary standards. And so let's think about which of the two of them is better and then how they stack up against fiat money. Uh, as between the two of them, we can look to the historical experience with gold standards and see that you get a slow and steady growth. Well, not quite steady. You get a slow growth on average in the supply of gold. Uh, Hugh Rockoff finds that the stock of monetary gold grew at 2.9% a year over the long 19th century. Uh, but one of the remarkable things about the gold standard is that the rate at which the gold stock grew was variable. It varied from 1% a year to 5% a year, and it varied in response to the current purchasing power of gold. So if the gold stock hadn't been growing as fast as the economies that were on a gold standard were growing, so that the purchasing power of gold had an upward trend, a rising purchasing power of gold stimulates gold mining. It pays to dig a little deeper into the gold mine. It pays to prospect a little more to look for new sources of gold. And as a result of that, the gold standard responded to demand shocks or the growth in demand and the countries switching from silver standards to gold standards. So in a way such as to stabilize the purchasing power of gold. That is when demand grew, it satisfied that demand by increasing the quantity rather than putting the burden of adjustment on the purchasing power of gold, the relative price of gold. So you can visualize gold having a flat long run stock supply curve, which means that over long periods, and you can see this in the historical data, it keeps returning to a pretty stable trend, a very flat trend in purchasing power. So the purchasing power of the US dollar was about the same less than 1% different between joining the gold standard in 1879 and the classical gold standard being abandoned in 1914. Now, there is the problem of supply shocks, that is, unexpected new discoveries of sources of gold, the largest of which was the California discovery. But they were actually relatively small. The impact of the California discovery on the value of gold was smaller than you might think. The inflation in the price level it created was less than one and a half percent for about a dozen years. Uh, but over the, as I said, over the long period, purchasing power of gold was very flat. Now in a Bitcoin standard, if we imagine a world in which Bitcoin is the predominant um, medium of exchange, so people are holding Bitcoin as a transaction medium, it would have a more stable demand than it has now when it's a speculative asset but it would not respond well to shocks in demand or to growth, uh, secular growth in demand, because the quantity of Bitcoin is absolutely inelastic. It grows at a programmed rate without regard to the value of Bitcoin, without regard to its price in dollars or its purchasing power over goods and services. So when there's variation in demand, the price of Bitcoin bears the entire impact of the demand shifts. And so the value of Bitcoin is quite volatile, as has been mentioned. There's no reversion to a steady secular path the way there was with the gold standard. And this purchasing power volatility is built into the 
design of the Bitcoin system. So Bitcoin has been successful at attracting investors, not so successful at attracting people who want to use it as a medium of exchange for the reason that its value is quite volatile. Uh, and here's an illustration of that. So the red spikes are Bitcoin's average daily price change. This is for 2018 to 2019, but you can look at, at longer time series and see the same thing. The volatility of Bitcoin has not really changed over its lifetime. Uh, and it's because the supply curve is absolutely vertical. So demand shifts are reflected only in the price and not in the quantity. All right, so where does that leave us? Well, uh, gold standards and Bitcoin standards are not going to establish themselves without a breakdown in fiat standards. People are going to continue to use fiat standards as long as they work tolerably well. Now, 10% inflation is on the verge of not working tolerably well. If we look at when countries with bad money with high inflation rates switch over to using the US dollar or the euro, if we look at when we see spontaneous dollarization, say in Latin America, it's somewhere between 10% inflation and 20% inflation. So if we don't bring down inflation in the dollar, we will see more uh, switching away from dollars as an alternative uh, medium of exchange uh, in countries with weak currency. Unless of course the Euro has the same problem and the British pound has the same problem and all the plausible candidate fiat monies have the same problem. Uh, but until then, uh, established standards have this network advantage that people want to be paid in what they can turn around and spend today. And there's not much you can buy in goods and services with Bitcoin uh, nor with gold uh, today. There are some outlying cases. If you look at Venezuela during its hyperinflation a couple of years ago, people were using Bitcoin uh, as a medium of payment and people were using gold as a medium of payment. In the gold mining regions of Venezuela, people were using flakes of gold in grocery stores and prices were posted in grams of gold. But that's a pretty extreme case. Uh, the US dollar has been the first alternative in countries with weak pesos. So to get a spontaneous global switch to a gold or a Bitcoin standard, I think we'll have to wait for chronically high inflation in all the major fiat currencies, which of course is not something to hope for. But it's good to have something on standby. And it's good to give people as much access to that alternative uh, as we can. So if we see a market switch, would it be to gold or would it be to Bitcoin? Gold has a larger installed base of users. There's about $11 trillion of gold above ground. Now, most of that is jewelry. The part of it that's in monetary form, that is bullion and coins, is something like $4 trillion. Uh, and that's a lot more than the market value of Bitcoin, which has been currently less than half a trillion. And gold's purchasing power is less volatile as the last chart showed. But Bitcoin has another advantage, which is that because it's intangible and can be transferred peer to peer without custodians, it's harder for governments to suppress or restrict or shut down than a system of gold-based payments. So we have to see which advantage will prove more popular 
But clearly, the more restrictive governments are, the more that favors Bitcoin uh, over gold. But there are other alternatives. So there could be something like Hayek imagined. And nowadays, it would probably take the form of a stable coin indexed to an, a price index. That hasn't been tried. It's not clear it's viable, but who knows? Uh, another alternative, and disclaimer, this is uh, the goal of a project I'm uh, working with some people on. You could have a crypto coin that has a more demand responsive supply in the fashion that the gold standard has, only responds more quickly in a matter of months rather than years. So uh, what we want is to have better monies from the point of view of the users of money, and that means stable purchasing power. We need to allow free entry of alternative monetary standards so that we don't truncate the competition, so we don't prevent the discovery of better ways to serve money users. We want a level playing field and an open playing field. But as long as fiat money lasts, we'll need to continue to work on ways to impose rules on it, to constitutionally constrain it, uh, to put it in that language. And a few years ago, I co-edited this uh, book, Renewing the Search for Monetary Constitution, that was published by the Cato Institute. So I'm obliged to plug it here. So thanks for your attention and I'll hope for some questions. Thank you, Dr. White. Um, we have some great audience questions and I'm gonna throw this first one out to anybody who wants to answer it. Uh, I love this question. It's it's uh, my favorite category as a journalist. It's the, you know, explain it to me like I'm a precocious 12 year old type question. Um, it's the first one that leaps to mind anytime somebody talks about digital yuan or a dollar stable coin. Uh, you, Bill asks, you, Professor Prasad said that central banks need to go digital to stay relevant. Isn't the dollar already digital? I never use paper dollars anymore, right? We're, we're moving dollars around as database entries. Now we're gonna move them around as database entries on a blockchain. It's a centralized blockchain. What's the difference? Well, I could, I mean, if any of us could answer that, it's the, the distinction is between commercial bank money and central bank money, right? Your, your, your account uh, that you're looking at uh, on your phone or whatever, that's commercial bank money. And uh, it's almost the same, um, not quite, uh, which is why, you know, in a panic, people might uh, substitute from one to the other and it settles differently. Um, but right, so it's, it's digital, it's, it's for all, almost any purposes that you might, you might as a retail person put it to, it's, it's a dollar, but it isn't quite a dollar. And I don't know if that's, if that's, if that's, if that's what the precocious 12 year old wants to hear, or if uh, one of my distinguished uh, colleagues wants to, wants to add to that. Uh, sure. I'd see Ann, Dr. White. Yeah, oh. you're absolutely right. We have digital dollars now. Uh, the wholesale payment system is digital dollars. Banks have accounts on the books of the Federal Reserve System, and they transfer lots of dollars every day uh, through that means. And we also have retail digital dollars, but those are provided by private institutions. So Venmo are privately issued digital dollars that serve, although its, it's construction is not quite that of peer-to-peer of -peer currency, it serves just like that. Um, and of course, uh, WeChat Pay and, and Alipay are digital quasi-currency systems. But I think uh, 
Professor Green was right that there's a kind of fear of missing out by central banks from the retail side. So the proposals for a central bank digital currency are proposals for the central bank to expand from just providing wholesale digital payments on its books to providing retail payments on its books. Most of the proposals are not for a blockchain-based system, but for people to have accounts on the books of the Federal Reserve System. And there's absolutely no rationale for that that survives uh, the critique we heard already. Yeah, I think- Dr. Green, do you agree? Yeah, so well, I'm not quite that skeptical, but um, I, I do think there are some benefits. I just think there's a bunch of risks too, and it all comes down to design. And actually, the optimally designed uh, digital central bank digital currency for the U.S. is going to be different from the optimally designed central bank digital currency for Europe, which will be—I mean, it will be different in every single jurisdiction because we're all trying to address different challenges in different ways. Um, I will say one difference um, because you know it was mentioned. It, a dollar at your commercial bank and a dollar at the central bank is very close, but not exactly the same. Uh, the theory is that the motivation's a little bit different too. So a central bank is a public institution, has more interest in kind of the public good and addressing some of these big societal issues, whereas a bank really just wants to maximize their profits or Venmo just wants to maximize their profits. Um, so I guess the, in theory, at least the, the motivation behind it might be a little bit different. Um. Now, a, a question totally uh, distinct from, from that one uh, about energy use. Um, this is something that I wonder as well. Bobby asks, regarding the White House energy report, should the government really be choosing proof of stake over proof of work? Or more broadly, should the government be picking any winners? And just to distinguish for those who are not as deep in the weeds as, as I am, of course, proof of work is the very energy intensive uh, way that Bitcoin currently works. Proof of stake is what Ethereum is trying to move toward that is much less energy intensive. So anyone who wants to take that, it sounds like Dr. Musto, you're pretty deep well, in these weeds. Yeah, so proof of work, right? That's where it costs something like $6,000 worth of electricity to mine a Bitcoin. Um, and so that's yeah, a lot, right? And, um, and so what I was saying was that if, when you hear industry people talk about it, say, well, okay, yeah, right, that's that's all true. Um, but um, we have tried hard to uh, locate where we're taking off excess energy. Um, and so it's not like we are uh, taxing anyone else's energy use. That's, you know, one thing that the White House pointed out is that the amount of mining going on in the U.S. has recently gone up quite a lot. So that uh, I think there's statistics where it was like 0.3%. It was very low just a few years ago. And now it's like 38%, right? So so it's maybe hard to keep up exactly where exactly whose grid uh, is is um, is is um, funding all that uh, is, is supplying the electricity. Uh, for that mining. Um, well, so, I mean, I guess the Biden administration would say, well, okay, now we are going to pick a winner here, uh, or we'd like to, because, because we don't want energy use that way. Uh, and it's, that's, that's our job in public policy uh, to, um, to push back on that. All right. I mean, I guess that, that's, uh, that's what they're saying. I, I didn't read the whole report. I know I, I just, I was uh, too much going on this morning, but I know I could cross my radar and I, I glanced at a summary of it. 
I would, oh, go ahead, Dr. Wade. It looks like you yeah, have some comments. I would say it's absolutely not the role of public policy to say how we should use our electricity. Um, if you're willing to pay the price of electricity, and if you're willing to pay enough to compensate any technological externalities from the use of electricity, uh, then you should be free to use your electricity as you like for any lawful purpose. So we don't say people can't fly because jet fuel contributes too much to global warming. We don't restrict other activities that use a lot of electricity. Uh, and so the government shouldn't be in the job of judging which uses are worthy and which are not worthy. If people are willing to pay, uh, the users of Bitcoin bear the costs of the electricity used to keep the Bitcoin system running. And if they're willing to bear those costs, more power to them. So we have another question um, that uh, I want to jump to uh, because I think it's a really critical one. I mean, it's a variant on, on the answers that all of you gave to the first audience question, but I think there's an important distinction here. So Roger asks, what benefit does a central bank digital currency offer that is not already offered or soon to be offered in the private and public sectors? I feel like it's a nice way to slice some of the skepticism that all of you have expressed. Um, you, you know, CBDCs are, are, are coming about, it sounds like, because of FOMO. But, you know, when we're designing them, you know, when we're thinking about are we being pushed into the verses, is this deliberate? Does this really get us something that we're not going to get soon from the, the private sector? So anyone who would love to address, who would like to address that. Well, I think Megan listed a lot of them. Go ahead and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would yeah. just support that point um, you know, with the Swiss Army knife example, right? A Swiss Army knife deal does a lot of different things, but it doesn't do any of them as well as another tool might. And so I do think there are a bunch of solutions that are coming out of the private sector um, that may not, may or may not be here yet. For example, financial inclusion India is a great example, right? They figured out how to give everyone a bank account for free. It just needed to be subsidized. They didn't need to create a central bank digital currency for it. And it, it reduced the number of unbanked Indians significantly. It's just one example. But uh, I do think that there's a single tool for each one of the goals for central bank digital currencies that I mentioned um, that does it better. But this the benefit of a central bank digital currency is it, it makes some progress on all these things at once. I think if we look at it from the point of view of consumers and ask what payment options and features are they willing to pay for, the private sector will try to find those and you know try to make a living uh, providing them. So it would be surprising to me if there were any benefits that haven't already been provided? I suppose in times of severe stress, a central bank digital currency is safer than, uh, you know, money from your bank. Uh, and so that is a benefit. E even when the bank deposit, even when the bank deposit is insured? Um, no, if you have unlimited, in you know, deposit insurance, that's fine, but you don't anywhere really. So, uh, and no one's talking about it. So up to a certain amount, fine, your deposits are safe. I, I can give you Cyprus as an example of that not even being a sure thing, right? When they were talking about having haircuts on deposits that should have been safe. Um, so you do know with absolute certainty that if if you've got an account with the central bank, they're not going to give you a haircut on those deposits. That's, that's one benefit nobody else can give you with quite as much security. 
Well, treasury bills provide that kind of security. Some might argue so, they don't. <laughs> Some might argue that you know U.S. debt is so high it's it's unsustainable. I wouldn't argue that, but but it is an argument. Well, they're, they're not going to default in the technical sense. They're always going to be able to print the dollars to pay you back what you're owed. The question is, what are those dollars going to be worth? And that's a question for central bank digital currency just as much as it is for uh, the dollars we have today. So I'm going to interrupt here because I'm I'm uh, sensing something that comes up in my reporting a lot, which is a, an irreconcilable economist debate. And we have time for one more question. Uh, I, I, this one Phil asked on the event page. He directed it to David, but I'd love to hear this from any of you. Um, what are your students most interested in? Is it cryptocurrency, different fintech business models, or something else? Well, so I see the whole range of uh, fintech enthusiasts um, and people are picking off different part of the whole uh, space. It, it could be, um, it, it, we interact with you know, startups involved in securing transactions, uh, in uh, dealing with KYC AML issues um, with uh, just so many things. And we have almost no time left here. Uh, so it's a little, let me just summarize by saying, uh, looking all around um, the, um, the, the uh, possible possible solutions for, for a distributed ledger with one or another kind of um, um, uh, verification uh, technology and trying to figure out um, how they're going to start their own company before they leave college. You know, that, that seems to be the, the big difference when I went to, uh, when I went to school. Now they're all, they all want their, they, you know, they're all want to start, start their own firm and, and, and some of them are, right? We'll, I, we'll see how well they do. I, and I'd love to hear from the, from the rest of you as well, what your students are interested in or any other folks you're working with. I'm teaching a course this semester, which is a PhD course in monetary theory. So there's interest in cryptocurrency, absolutely, but also in uh, central bank digital currencies, in the gold standard, in alternative monetary arrangements uh, of various kinds. Uh, they're not planning to start businesses, but they're looking for research topics. I teach a seminar series on central bank digital currency and um, monetary policy tools. So I would say that, but that's because I'm talking my own book. <laughs> um, it's biased. <laughs> I would say students generally are interested in, in uh, cryptocurrencies, stable coins um, and CBDCs, but there's very little connection um, that I hear about between the two of them. So either they seem to be really interested in private sector digital currencies or central bank digital currencies, but uh, there's a big gap, it seems like, between them. So we are right on time here, and uh, I want to keep things moving. So uh, Lawrence White, Megan Green, David Musto, and uh, Dr. Prasad, who had to leave early, thank you very much for being a part of this fascinating and deep panel. And uh, thank you to all the viewers who tuned in. I hope you got as much out of this as I did. And I'd like to turn it over now to uh, Jim Dorn, Vice President for Monetary Studies at the Cato Institute. Thank you, uh, and thanks again for chairing that session, Christopher. Appreciate it. 
I'd like to thank the speakers and the chairs uh, today. They did a great job, as well as the Cato staff and uh, my friend uh, Norbert Michelle, who is the director of the uh, Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at Cato, uh, for his uh, support throughout this whole process. Um, and especially Jay Bowen and his family foundation who helped uh, uh, finance uh, this particular event. Uh, we began today with a general discussion of Fed policy uh, with Jay Powell and Peter Gettler and ended with the future of money. What I like about the 40 years of running this conference is the fact that our speakers present various viewpoints. We, we encourage a civil discussion of key policy issues and alternative monetary regimes thus fostering the free market and ideas. The hope is, of course, to improve the monetary regime by reducing to the extent possible uncertainty about the course of monetary policy and by examining the evolution of monetary and uh, financial systems. Uh, these are goals also, of course, that uh, Chairman Powell uh, supported earlier uh, in the program. Cato has published numerous works on monetary policy and monetary history. And I encourage you to visit our website uh, to explore some of our research. I hope you can all join us for future events. Uh, thanks for listening in today and for your patience in dealing with some of the technical issues. Uh, we'll be airing uh, Larry Summers' uh, remarks as soon as the uh, audio is fixed, which I imagine would be uh, fairly soon. Um, on a personal note, this is my final conference, so I'd like to thank all those who have made it possible to reach number 40. And I've bypassed that age by a couple decades, so that's a good thing too. Anyway, uh, enjoy your weekend and thanks very much for joining us today. <laughs>